This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow at Millennial Politics, and Rashad Robinson, Civil Rights Leader and President of Color of Change. Rashad, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. We're really excited to have you. And, and just for our audience, Color of Change is a nonprofit and racial justice organization that really aims to impact corporations and government for the benefit of African Americans. But before we dive into your current work, could you start by just giving us a bit about your background, uh, your journey, how'd you get where you are today, and then talk a little bit about your organization's work? Sure. You know, I grew up um, interested in politics probably from a much earlier age than um, you're supposed to. I feel like uh, my parents were worried that either it would take me into a life of politics or it could take me into a life of crime because I was constantly <laughs> thinking about how to influence um, situations. But, you know, I started knocking on doors for candidates when I was 13 or 14 out on Eastern Long Island, where my family uh, still lives and came, you know, a couple of generations ago through the Great Migration from the South to the North. And so Eastern Long Island has, a, you know, 10 the town I grew up in has 10, 15% black population. So we had to organize for everything to get, you know, our streets clean, to get someone to represent us on the school board. And so I would oftentimes go to black neighborhoods with white candidates and I would knock on the door and they'd be like, oh, that's Shirley and Everett's son. Let him. And I would get, let the cat, get the candidate in and be able to sit there as they were talking with issues and get a sense for whether or not my family believed them or, or people that knew my family. And so I got a, upfront seat. I also led local protests. And so from a really early age was involved with the local NAACP and um, new folks at the eight local ACLU affiliate. And so all of that was very much part of my upbringing. Um, you know, my professional organizing career has really spanned sort of doing work around voting rights and uh, restoring voting um, for uh, people with felony convictions, you know, after the 2000 election, which was that effort really heated up with all of the sort of uh, revelations of what happened in Florida during the Gore Bush Gore recount and and what and what sort of the impact of felony disenfranchisement meant to sure. our democracy, and then. You know, um, after 2004, when, you know, 13 uh, ballot measures were passed around the country, uh, uh, banning uh, marriage uh, between uh, couples of the same sex, I really got um, involved in what what could work in the LGBT movement look like? And I had been on this reality show called American Candidate. It was an early reality show. It was on Showtime. It was hosted by Montel Williams. And it was... Um, and it was following, you know, 10 candidates around the country and America would vote them off each week. And there was a candidate and a campaign manager. And uh, we had like kind of like the Tim Gunn to our 
our, our political campaigns, the advisor to our political campaigns would come in each week. And it was people like Ed Gillespie and Donna Brazil and Joe Trippi. You have to remember sort of the timing back in 2004. Um, and so those were sort of the, the political folks that came in and advised the campaign. But during that effort, um, the the actual show got nominated for a GLAD award because there were a number of LGBT folks, including myself, in the show, as well as Chrissy Gephardt, uh, Dick Gephardt's daughter, and Keith Boykin, who's a CNN commentator and had worked in the Clinton administration. And we were all on the show and it had a lot of representation of LGBT folks at the time. I spent six years at GLAD, starting there um, really before... Um, just as couples were getting um, married um, in in cities where mayors were uh, stepping over the actual laws to marry couples and were getting slapped down as a result. But um, and they were doing it in response to the Massachusetts decision, which legalized um, a marriage in that state. And I left GLAD six years later as couples in the state where I was born um, and where I live, New York, were getting married. And that tremendous sort of progress of change, I got to have a front seat at. Um, being inside the room um, at networks when they were going to green light TV shows that um, at the time may not seem like revelations in terms of representation, but at the time were. Having to really fight and build campaigns to protect representations like those that were on Glee and um, and Six Feet Under and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, and also doing the work to help um, force news agencies to uh, represent uh, LGBT people in new ways. And it really um, connected my love for politics with my, con- with my sort of appreciation, respect um, for the power of narrative and storytelling in being able to deliver on that policy change and be able to ensure that we're not just dealing with written rules, but we're dealing with unwritten rules. And so, you know, back in 2011, it was sort of time for me to leave GLAD after six years. I had become the head of programs by the time I left and and really sort of rose very quickly. Um, you know, the thing about an organization that thinks about campaigns is media savvy. You know, you don't need 15 years of legal studies to be able to like leave the department. And I was able to um, take a lot of what the experience I had growing up and the work that I had, you know, put in. Um, that may not have been as much in the professional field and really combine that with being able to lead teams. And then, you know, I've been at Color of Change now for the last um, nine years, since 2011, May 2nd. May 2nd was nine years. And um, and, and during that time, I've had the opportunity to both build and grow a piece of infrastructure. And that's really important to me because, right, when we think about racial justice, when we think about LGBT rights, when we think about women's liberation, we can oftentimes think about and point to a lot of individual characters that are part of the story for justice, right? We think about, you know, folks like Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer, and uh, we think about folks like Gloria Steinem. We think about folks like Harvey Milk, right? We have these figures and names in our in our consciousness, but oftentimes um, what is missing is the story of the infrastructure that actually propelled it and made it possible. And I've always been a person that believes in the power of people coming together and then having those vehicles to actually force change and make change possible. And so I came to Color of Change, you know, nine years ago, we had about five and a half staff. We had about a 
$650,000 budget, but the organization was just wrapping up a really powerful campaign of forcing Glenn Beck off the air, a two-year campaign that um, forced over 200 advertisers to leave, engaged over 250,000 of the Color of Change members um, to force that. And while the organization didn't have infrastructure to run a bunch of campaigns at the time, they had a very clear model, a theory of change, and the infrastructure to really scale. And so over these nine years, you know, we've grown to a staff of nearly 100, a budget of about $30 million staffed um, in uh, cities um, and locations all around the country, and a membership of 1.7 million Black folks and allies who have actually taken action with us. That 1.7 really represents the people that have taken action with us in the last eight months alone, and really represents, um, you know, for us, um, the sort of most powerful uh, 21st century vehicle for racial justice. Um, and I mean that really because I mean, I'm talking about the infrastructure and the scale, the ability to not just be present uh, with tweets, but to be powerful to exact campaigns to force institutions and individuals to do things that they don't want to do. Absolutely. No, that makes total sense. And I couldn't help, you know, thinking back to your initial background, your introduction, if you will, being a part of the LGBTQ movement, a lot of progressive activists point to that as, uh, you know, the the example of rapid progression in such a short period of time. How was being on the front line and having that seat at the table for that movement, how has that helped inform your digital first approach, your 21st century perspective of activism with color of change? You know, a couple of things, right? The LGBT movement was unapologetic about being ambitious, about um, uh, demanding uh, upfront what you want and, and finding ways to say it in powerful ways and to and to show it in powerful ways. Um, you know, the many LGBT people um, are not born into families where they're feeling oppressed or where they are experiencing oppression, right? And so there was a way in which this sort of influence of having folks who had come to their oppression um, as they grew up, um, that sort of uh, um, being born with a sense of privilege and a sense of believing that things should be a different way, the sort of so many of the sort of white male colleagues that I work with um, absolutely, I think, informed um, some of the ways in which I think about unapologetically growing the infrastructure of color of change and think about the ways in which um, our demands should be, can be uh, bold. You know, when I think about the sort of application of the actual work, you know, a couple of things that really uh, sort of stand out for me is, right, far too often we think about, um, you know, we we think about uh, folks who um, are oppressed, folks who are in bad situations as um, folks who need empathy and building empathy for those who have been impacted. We hear it all the time. Um, And I think what was powerful and important about the LGBT movement, that it wasn't a movement of empathy, it was a movement of power, right? Empathy gets you, um, empathy gets you fixes to problems, power gets you structural reform, right? And so, um, the movement could have just accepted civil unions as some sort of um, uh, separate but equal uh, kind of uh, 
conclusion to the fight to have relationship recognition, the fight to be able to ensure that we were able to uh, see our partners in the hospital and being able to plan for life and being able to have the protections. But, you know, believing that you deserve the same thing um, as your friends, family, and neighbors um, is a powerful act, right? And then fighting to change structures and rules to make that possible is a powerful act. And there was something for me about being part of uh, that movement that was unapologetic in um, disrupting norms and remaking norms um, in order to make society work, um, in order to make society function, that I, I, I apply as well as obviously the sort of the kind of work that I did there around the media savvy, the work in Hollywood to force um, um, networks to um, portray us in fair, accurate, and inclusive ways, but also the incentive structures to make people feel like they were on the right side of history and they were becoming heroes by actually doing um, more positive representation. So that carrot and stick uh, sort of approach to changing. And I think that, you know, sometimes um, on the left in particular, we don't give enough weight to the power of narrative. We use the term narrative, but we talk about it a lot and it almost means communications work. And when I talk about narrative, I don't mean, I don't mean getting our stories out, which is like communications work. I mean getting our stories in. And the difference between getting stories out and getting stories in is being able to um, um, have these the ideas hardwired into our system. So people are willing to stand up for them. People are willing to make buying decisions based on them. People are willing to every single day showing up, believing it. It's actually one of the things that the right does really well in acculturating ideas through uh, churches, through community groups, so that people are just don't know what you believe, but they're willing to act on it, respond on it, take um, instinctual steps um, in that direction. And, um, and part of uh, the narrative change work at Color of Change, right? I mean, at, at GLAD, which was informed so much of what I think about at Color of Change, is that idea that narrative is the rules and norms of society, what is acceptable and what is possible. And when we change what is acceptable, which is the floor, and we push up the ceiling on what's possible, there is a whole lot of space for the type of change that we want to achieve. And sometimes that change is really rooted in changing policies and laws, but other times that is simply rooted in how we change practices and behaviors and culture, right? Because you can't legislate a parent to treat their kid better when they come out. You can't legislate um, a church to not turn away um, parishioners who are in need of services because they are LGBT. Um, but if you change culture, you create a new incentive, a new possibility. And so I you know, have just been um, so compelled my entire career, particularly it, but then being able to apply it from my time at GLAD in not just changing policy, but changing culture, because culture has the ability uh, to have to be a force multiplier far beyond the limitations of law. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective. Um, so getting into kind of the news and current events, um, obviously there was the tragic murder of Ahmad Arbery, a 26-year-old black man who went out for a jog and essentially was lynched in broad daylight by two white men. 
And so Ahmad's name has been added to a long list of victims of white supremacy in recent years. How has Color of Change mobilized in response? So we've, you know, quickly um, built out um, a petition that was focused on the district attorneys, uh, Barnhill and Johnson, both of whom um, in different ways through the case, uh, you know, Jackie Johnson had the opportunity uh, to have the have those gentlemen arrested and have those killers arrested. And um, and she didn't. And she told the police not to arrest. And Barnhill saw the tape, uh, George Barnhill saw the tape and decided um, uh, to suppress. In both situations, this case sort of illustrates the ways in which racism is both individual and structural. Like individual in the case where these two men felt that they could uh, track down and kill Ahmad in, in, in daylight. And then the structural in that nothing gets done. Um, um, there is not accountability. And in both those things are part of how sort of racism works. We are challenging the district attorneys because district attorneys are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice space. We want accountability for those DAs. We want them to be investigated by the Georgia Bar. We want to get them removed from office. They can either remove themselves or we will build a campaign to get them removed um, in both situations. Um, that is about creating long-term consequences. Um, we're working with the Georgia NAACP and others locally um, in Georgia to help register voters, to help build media power around this story, to help elevate other issues like Ahmad's um, in that area. All of that for us has been part of a long-term strategy to change the face of district attorneys um, elections and offices. And so we've built out a, a long-term campaign called Winning Justice. Winningjustice.org is our platform that really looks at the, you know, the role of prosecutor and prosecution in this country. There are 2,400 local district attorneys. And while we talk a lot about what the president might do about criminal justice, the vast majority of people are incarcerated at the local level. Well over 80% of people are incarcerated at the local level. And because of that, the DA really does dictate so many of the things that are prosecuted and not prosecuted, dictates how justice is served and whether or not it is equitable. And so we, for the last several years, have been, you know, really systematically with the Color of Change PAC going around and taking out district attorneys that don't value Black lives. And we have been working um, in district attorney offices with DAs uh, to uh, bring about policies that are going to ensure both safety and justice in our communities. And so what we are trying to um, animate right now in terms of people's energy is directing it at the structural things that we can do, which is changing the district attorney's offices, changing the practices long term. And then there'll be other things that we hope to do. But over 300,000 people have signed the petition already. You can find it at Color of Change. Dot org, um, and um, that is a very clear way to for folks to add their voice to the chorus of people, Black folks and allies of every race, who are outraged by the video they've seen that don't want things like this to happen in their name with their tax dollars under our watches as people, but recognize that um, uh, uh, prosecution. Um, alone, uh, arrest alone, even convictions alone, uh, do not bring about the type of long-term justice, right? We know there are other Ahmads out there, and if we had never seen the tape, if we had never seen the tape, 
we would not be in this, we would not be having this conversation at all. So Rashad, you, you mentioned allyship and, and this is something that I try to think about quite frequently, but people like myself or Sam, you know, we're two white guys, we're in the know, but we don't perhaps always know how to best be an ally. So what actions do you hope to see from someone like me, from someone like Sam, maybe our listeners who are white? How do we make a transition from being not racist to anti-racist? What does that allyship look like for you? And what are some actions that people like myself or our listeners could do to help move and advance us forward in the right direction? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, for folks who are listening um, to this podcast, my, uh, my sort of initial assumption is that you are intellectually curious, that you want um, to understand um, about the world around you, that you've spending time listening to a podcast about politics, that you want to be informed. And so get yourself- We, we like to think that about our listeners, but- <laughs> I like to, I, 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 that's, that's my hope. And right, if they're at this point in the interview, then my hope is that you stayed around for the conversation and that, and that you want to- that you want to read and that you want to like dig in. There's a a lot of different things I would I would urge you. I would I would urge you to check out some books. I would check ask you to check out uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I would actually I would urge folks to um to uh, check out books like How to Be an Anti Racist um, because those um, those that piece those type of literature is great. There's a great uh, podcast. I mean a great TED talk from my board chair Heather McGee. Um, uh, who used to lead an organization called Demos. And Heather um, has a TED Talk up right now where she's talking about the cost of uh, racism on white people and on non-Black folks and how uh, racism and from a public policy perspective has hurt all of us. And I think sort of rooting ourselves in that. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is find organizations that you can follow, find leaders um, within those communities that you can follow. Sometimes people don't want to write the full tweet themselves because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. And so this is an opportunity to retweet, to uplift, to think about the sort of women of color leaders that you're uplifting so that we're up where we're being equitable in the people that we uplift. I would urge people to follow Color of Change. We think about ourselves as an organization um, led and driven by the power of Black folks, but an organization that absolutely um, needs uh, the support um, and um, and connection to allies, you know, and part of all of our campaigns creates pl- pathways for allies uh, to engage. And so I would urge uh, folks to join us at Color of Change, to follow us, to uplift our work. Uh, you know, when I talk about the... the um, the growth that we've had as an organization, that's been because um, we have been able to benefit from allies as much as we've been able to benefit from folks in the communities. And so all of that, um, I think, are ways that people should think. But I would say educate yourself, read, um, do the things that you do when you want to know something in general in life. And then you know, when it's time to make your voice heard, you don't have to uh, reinvent the wheel. You don't have to write the story. There are folks out there that you can follow and uplift and move their voices out in the world. 
The final thing I will just say is, and this is something that I thought about a lot, even during my time at the in LGBT work, when, you know, um, after Prop 8 was passed um, in California, and I was on the executive committee of the No on Prop 8 campaign, and so spent a lot of time fundraising, you know, pushing spokespeople, you know, the we had relatively small executive committee. And so it was a crushing defeat to the campaign. But right after that, um, right after that, was over, you know, there were tons of protests that happened um, in cities around the country after the, you know, particularly in places like the Castro in the West Village and, and, you know, traditional um, and, you know, the, the West Village and, and, you know, West Hollywood, traditional like gay LGBT conclaves in cities. And so these, these took place. But I was always pushing, and I think I wrote an op-ed at the time, urging um, um, my uh, LGBT brothers and sisters to actually not protest in, in um, or to protest if they wanted to inside of, inside of uh, gay cities, but to go home on Thanksgiving and have that conversation with uh, um, Aunt Edna, to go home and have that conversation with the uncle who may say those things. Um, and I say that to allies as well that um, it's, it is great to give your support to your black or brown friend um, in these moments, um, but it's also important that um, we are disrupting the, that thinking inside of our own uh, spaces, inside of our own families, inside of our own networks. And that's the work that white people can do in more powerful ways than anyone else. And that's the responsibility for pe white people who are allies, for them to think about how, um, if they want the folks in their lives to change, that is the first step on making our country change. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So transitioning a little bit to obviously the biggest news that we've had for the past few months. Um, some of the latest data from the American Public Media Research Lab shows that African Americans have made up roughly 27% of COVID-19 deaths, although they only account for about 13% of the U.S. population. Why is this the case and what can be done to mitigate this? So the things that can be done to mitigate this um, is where I'll go first. And where I, and the reason why I'm going there first is because um, the things that we have to do are the reasons why we have the problem in the first place. And, they, and, and so Black people and Black communities are not vulnerable, right? Black people and Black communities um, are not vulnerable because vulnerability is a personal trait. Um, 
Black communities and Black people have been under attack. We have been exploited. We have been neglected. Um, those are sort of the, the what has animated Black people's experience in this country from servitude to um, sort of neglect and exploitation. And so because of that, um, uh, COVID-19 just gets into the crevices of that, of those decisions, of that, of the ways in which we have um, uh, funded, the ways in which we have built, right? If you, um, if you uh, deny people health care and deny people access to community health and deny people access to be able to take, take care of themselves from a healthy perspective because they don't have healthy food in their community, you can't then blame them on the back end for not being healthy. When you deny people access to quality education um, and and quality schools, you can't deny you can't blame people on the back end for being um, for not being educated. But that's exactly what happens time and time again to Black folks in America. And so, if we are to solve this problem, we actually have to do the things that we were unwilling to do before. Because while COVID is a virus, the virus of bad decisions that precede it and the virus of bad decisions that have followed it have really been part of what has gotten us into this problem. And we see this through other crises, right? Katrina wasn't just a flood. It was a flood of bad decisions that preceded and a flood of bad decisions that followed it. And so part of what we you know, actually need, right, besides sort of a host of immediate things to deal with a crisis that's already hit us, like you know, providing immediate access uh, to accessible health care, emergency money to people, you know, putting, um, you know, dealing with uh, what's happening in in places where Black people are overrepresented and where social distancing is impossible. So in cities and urban areas, in, um, in prisons and jails, um, all of these are places where the disease will stay for a long time and track in and out of the community over time. Um, and so for us, um, we've put together a platform called The Black Response, uh, theblackresponse.org, because we recognize that the things that we need in this moment are not um, about changing hearts and minds, uh, because um, you know that in and of itself won't get us to the type of investments that will change these circumstances now and in the long term. It is about uh, building power and forcing change on decision makers who unfortunately far too often are not nervous about disappointing our community. And so what we need, um, you know, is the type of sort of injection of resources, um, the type of structural change to systems like healthcare and the economy. Um, and all of those things um, were things if we had done them prior, we might be experiencing a different type of result now. But now is an inflection point. And the inflection point, and I mean inflection point because either things could get a lot worse or things have the potential to get a lot better. But it's all about the decisions we make right now. And that is um, the kind of scariness of this moment, but it's also the potential as well. So talking about the decisions that are being made on an economic front, we're watching as trillions of dollars get injected into our economy in response to COVID, 
But historically, and even now, you know, black business owners have struggled to get loans from their banks when they needed them. And I have to imagine that that's continuing. You know, I even go back to the age of redlining, right? Aspiring black homeowners couldn't even get mortgages. Do you think we're kind of seeing history repeat itself with the latest PPP packages, the small business loans, the quote unquote stimulus that's coming out of this government? Yeah, I mean, we see history repeat itself. Only it, it moves a lot. The it moves a lot quicker because of technology and and the pace of business. And so, what ends up happening is that the um, impact becomes even worse because um, uh, the the uh, inequality can be even more animated. Right up until 1980, we were seeing um, a real closing of the gap between white and black sort of wealth and um, and sort of economic inequality. And then from 1980, based off of a whole set of policies that were put in place, we started seeing that sort of gap continue basically steadily expand. And, and so absolutely we are seeing this. We are hearing directly from black businesses, you know, around the country about how how they couldn't access this. We have spent time, you know, talking with uh, Speaker Pelosi and and Senator Schumer, as well as members of the Congressional Black Caucus and Progressive Caucus, and bringing the sort of stories of our members uh, to those places. You know, we are supporting Pramila Jayapal's uh, Paycheck Protection Bill because um, we do believe that we need more specific relief and support for black businesses um, who do not have, um, overwhelmingly who do not have relationships with the big banks where this money was originally sent. And while, you know, in the 3.5 version of the CARES Act, um, they've put more money into local community-based uh, and banks and financial institutions, um, you know, for many black businesses, right? Black women are the fastest growing entrepreneurs in this country, but the story of that is a complicated one in that many of these folks um, are not necessarily, don't have employees. They are, you know, single person businesses uh, in a lot of sort of, of the fast growing industries like home healthcare and other places. You know, not being a, both a business and not having employees has made accessing these resources incredibly hard. And that's another fix that's going to have to be put in place. These laws as written, right? Um, and because so much money, as you said, trillions of dollars are moving, we don't have public hearings. We don't have the sort of visibility because of all the ways in which COVID has made that um, really challenging. Part of this is uh, um, dealing with all the ways in which big business and corporations, you know, have not only lobbyists in the rooms, but have the politicians that they've bought in the rooms writing this, we have to work extra hard uh, to both build power around the ideas uh, that are going to move our community forward, and then also uh, build um, build both power around those ideas and then put power behind them to champion them in the face of a lot of other policies that um, that are being advanced that are going to continue to keep the status quo in place. And so another aspect of um, the coronavirus and its impact that comes from racial disparity. So we've seen a lot of pictures recently from New York City parks when the weather was nice. Um, you've white cops and white neighborhoods kind of handing out masks and gloves. But in minority neighborhoods, that relationship isn't really there. And there are a lot of 
arrests. And the data backs this up too. So there was data released a few days ago by the NYPD. And that data showed that 81% of coronavirus enforcement summonses between March 15th and May 5th were issued to Black or Latino residents. 81%, which is a, a huge number. So what can local governments and law enforcement do to ease these disparities, but still make sure that people are staying safe and following the guidelines? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think first we have to have uh, a vision of what safety looks like, right? A police officer um, pushing, slamming someone down on the ground and getting on top of them so that they can wear their mask kind of defeats the whole social distancing um, uh, conversation um, in its face. And it, of and course. It, I, and I think it sends a message, right, that um, that uh, Black people are still enemy combatants in their own neighborhoods, even during this crisis. You know, I live in New York City, and, you know, the images of folks laid out on the pier without masks during um, in the West Village, um, and then the images in Harlem of people being arrested and accosted for not wearing masks, uh, you know, is exactly the, the, the image of two New Yorks that animated the campaign work that we that we did along with many partners around ending stop and frisk. But it but it speaks to right all the ways in which written and unwritten rules collide, right? You can have laws against stop and frisk, but the minute something kind of comes down that incentivizes people being treated poorly by police, police will go back to doing what they were doing before, um, even in an era where everyone's carrying cameras in their pockets. And so we need accountability from the mayor. We need district attorneys to not um, charge people for these for these arrests. Um, we need um, sort of a real ongoing tracking of those racial disparities, and we need people fired if they continue. The only way that this will be solved is if people in power are held accountable and are incentivized. Not that they feel compelled to fix this, not that they feel sorry that it's happening, um, because right? This is not unfortunate, like some sort of car accident, right? That just sort of happened. No, we don't know how these disparities happen. These are manufactured by the structures and systems that have been put in place, by the incentive structures inside of police departments, by the rules and norms that have been allowed. And any person in power who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. And so part of what is both, um, really just painful and disgusting as someone who, uh, you know, supported de Blasio and um, appreciated all the ways he talked about ending stop and frisk, using the images of his children and his family um, in really powerful ways that were compelling, is um, is like when he's talked about it on Twitter, he's almost talking like he's talking about a city that he's the mayor of. Um, like he's not talking as the mayor, but talking about it. And and hopeful it changes. And I guess my real question, once again, is who's in charge here? Is it the police in charge? Is it the mayor's in charge? Who's in charge? Who do we hold accountable? Because clearly the mayor has decided that he's not um, running his own city. Rashad, we, we so appreciate you coming on here. We so appreciate the work that you do. Um, and on a personal note, it was just wonderful to connect. Our last question for you, how can people find you online? How can they follow the work that you do at Color of Change? They can find us by going to colorofchange.org. Um, our um, hub for our COVID-related work is called theblackresponse.org. 
and so both colorofchange.org and theblackresponse.org are two of the places you can go. Um, if you want to sign the petition for Ahmaud Arbery, it's on colorofchange.org. Um, you can follow us across all social media platforms at Color of Change. Um, I am on Twitter at uh, Rashad Robinson and on Instagram at I am Rashad Robinson. And um, in both those places, all those places are places that you can follow, engage, take action um, and join us. Um, be part of the sort of 1.7 million black folks and allies of every race uh, working to make justice real um, and working to uh, ensure that racial justice um, is not just strat just not charity because racial justice is not just charity but racial justice is strategy it's a force multiplier for us to win all of the things that we want to win in our society and so i hope people will join us and also thanks for having me i really appreciate this and appreciate the conversation our pleasure and for our listeners be sure to look us up online millennialpolitics.co find us on itunes uh, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts, rate us five stars. That's how people find us. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. <laughs>